O Lord, as we now come to Your Word, we remember that Your Word is perfect. That Your Word is inerrant, it's inspired, it's infallible, it's unassailable, and it is sufficient for everything that we need to know about You, about ourselves, about salvation, that it would be met by others. We pray, O Lord, that as we study Your Word, that it would be met by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, bringing it from our minds, from our ears, to our hearts, that we may live by these truths. And we ask this also not only for ourselves, but for our children as well. We pray, O Lord, that You would save our children. We know that there's nothing that we can do to save them. We can disciple them. We can teach them correctly. But, O Lord, You must do the work of bringing it to their heart. And so this is what we ask that you would save our children, that you would strengthen your people today as we study your word, that it would accomplish your purposes, that it would not return void to you, all for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 17. We'll be... Continuing our study in John chapter 17 today, we're actually, it's not a misprint in the bulletin, we really are going to be covering four verses today. Uh, these verses do constitute a, a unit, as, uh, as you'd say, they, they are cohesive. Uh, I don't think it's possible to get the fullest understanding of verse 20 without verse 23, so we will be looking at chapter 17 verses 20 to 23 today as we continue our study of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. The theme of this passage is unity among Christians. And anytime I I think about the concept or or the doctrine of Christian unity, I remember an, an old song. There's an old song that used to be included in some hymnals. I think it might have been included in our old hymnal titled, They'll Know We Are Christians by our love. Uh, Now, if I'm being completely honest with you, I've never been a fan of this song because even though some of the lyrics are true and and good, I've always felt like it was only partly true and that the song was actually kind of cloudy, kind of ambiguous. See, if love by itself proves that someone is a Christian, uh, then, well, I mean, fallen man loves sinful things. Uh, so, so love can't define what uh, love alone can't define what a Christian is. There are just too many words, too many lyrics in the song that can be understood so ambiguously and, and in too broad of a sense. For example, who who are we talking about when we say we in that song? Uh, with whom are we one? What is love? I should write a song called that. Uh, and perhaps most importantly, what's the object of our love? Uh, those are important questions. So it wasn't terribly surprising for me to learn uh, this past week that that song was actually written by a movement that goes back to the 1970s called the Catholic Charismatic Movement. Uh, that alone opens a whole can of worms, doctrinally speaking. But the song is 
supposed to be about Christian unity, and, and that's a complicated subject. Do we have unity with everybody who claims to be a Christian? That's one of the problems that I have with the song. It, it, it kind of sounds like the answer would be yes. Do we, though? Do we have unity with everybody who claims to be a Christian? I mean, think about it this way. The Latter-day Saints claim to be Christians, but they worship a finite God, a God who, uh, who has a beginning, uh, a finite God who used to be human, just like you and me. And the reason that He's God now is because He was such a good person, so He got promoted to the status of God. Um, by whom? Uh, they're not very clear on that, but I, I guess maybe the God who was God before him, I, I don't know. But because of this kind of theology where, uh, where a man's goodness is rewarded with becoming a God, uh, Latter-day Saints are actually the most polytheistic religion in the world. They certainly are not Christian. So no, we don't have unity with everybody who claims to be Christian. Now, it is good for Christians to have a sense of unity with one another, and yet there are, we recognize, so many things that divide us. Jeremiah Burroughs, who wrote the, the book, the classic book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which is easily one of the best Christian books ever written. I, I strongly recommend it for everybody. But he also wrote a book called Causes, Evils, and Cures of Heart and Church Divisions. See, a lack of unity, obviously, in the church isn't only a modern uh, phenomenon. He wrote these books centuries ago. Uh, he has a whole section in this book, which is titled uh, Distempers That Divide, and another section titled Practices That Divide. And he goes through things in these chapters like pride and jealousy and contention and not keeping within the bounds that God has set and favoritism and so on and so forth. But the truth is that there appears, and that's the key word here, keep in mind, there appears to be a lot of division among those who profess to be Christians. It's not uncommon for the skeptic or the scoffer to make note of the fact that there are actually over 40,000 Christian denominations in the world. And that's a number that continues to grow. Uh, so, so how can Christianity claim to be true, they'll ask, when there are over 40,000 different groups of them all claiming that the others are wrong? That's a good question. That's a tough question, isn't it? Because we can't deny that it sounds on the surface absolutely absurd that so many denominations would exist. And we can't deny the truthfulness of the claim that there are over 40,000 denominations. And yet, this is a question that you and I need to know how to answer. Especially because the unity of Christians is something that Jesus specifically prays for in his high priestly prayer here in John chapter 17. Now as we approach this subject of Christian unity, I'd like to break this down into three questions that we would address today to help us gain a deeper understanding of this issue. First, what is Christian unity? Secondly, what is the foundation of Christian unity? And finally, 
what does Christian unity look like in a practical sense? In other words, how does it play out in our lives? Uh, These three questions I hope that you would be able to answer as you depart from here today. But the point of this passage that we come to here in John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23, is that doctrinal truth and the purity of our doctrine, particularly with essential doctrines, is the foundation of Christian unity. And thus to depart from true and necessary doctrine is to depart from the true church. Jesus has been praying for His disciples on behalf of these alone, these being the disciples uh, who were with Him. He continues, but for those also who believe in Me through their word. Now what this means is that He has prayed not only for the disciples up to this point, but He's praying for the same things for all Christians, for the church throughout this age. And so summarizing what He's prayed for for them and therefore for us so far, He's prayed for our preservation in verse 11. He prayed for our jubilation in verse 13. He prayed for our emancipation from evil in verse 15. And for our sanctification in the truth of the Scriptures in verse 17. And now He prays for our unification. So, Jesus continues praying in verses 20 to 23. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in Me through their Word, that they may all be one, even as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they may also be in Us, so that the world may believe that You sent Me. The glory which You have given Me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as We are one, I in them and You in Me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that You sent Me and loved them, even as You have loved Me." What a rich, what a great blessing it is to know that Jesus prayed for us on this night. That He had you and me even in mind. On this night when He was betrayed by one of His closest friends, one of His companions, and He knew that He was close to being arrested and tried as a criminal, even though He had never once sinned, His heart was filled with with grief and anguish, and yet he selflessly focused on his people because their redemption, their salvation, was the very purpose for which he had come to begin with. He knew that the church that he would build would not end with his disciples. The disciples would only be the men through whom Christ would begin building his church. And thus he clarifies that he does not pray for all of these things only for the disciples, but he prayed them for you. He prayed them for me. And he prayed them for every Christian throughout this age. Now, as we've seen, the Father would oblige all of these requests that Jesus makes before the Father because the Father and the Son share the same will. 
The Father and the Son share the same will. This is what the church has taught since very on, uh, very early on in church history. It's only come into question in the last 50 years or so, which is something, that should say something. Because a hundred years ago, if you believed that the Father and the Son didn't share a divine will, you would be accused, rightfully so, of denying Trinitarian theology, and you would not even be considered a Christian. So, the lesson there is that we would stay on the old paths. That we would stay on the orthodox paths. The paths that have been trodden before us. That the church has always walked. And beware of those who teach the doctrine which is referred to as the eternal subordination of the Son. Because that doctrine, the eternal subordination of the Son, necessarily implies that the Father and the Son do not share the same will. And if the Father and the Son don't share in the same will, the, the divine will is what we call it, then we have a lot of issues that arise. A lot of issues in arise, that arise. But in this context specifically, we would have no assurance that the Father would answer any of these prayer requests that Jesus is laying out before Him. Maybe He would. Maybe He wouldn't. Maybe Jesus' prayers would be in vain. Perish the thought. The Father and the Son share one will. There is only one divine will. Each person does not have their own will. They all share in the divine will. But since the Father and the Son do share in what we call the divine will, the divine will, we can be sure that even this prayer request, that the church would have unity, has been answered positively, affirmatively, by the Father. So let's stop for a moment and also marvel at the fact that Jesus even makes this petition. He's praying for some really important things. We have responsibilities to ask questions of the text, to probe it, to interrogate the text, to ask questions of the text. That's, that's how we dig deeply into God's Word. We, we break the surface and we ask questions of the text so that we may open up the ground and discover what beautiful gems and jewels we find in the soil. So why? Why does Jesus even make this petition? Well, if you look at the church today, you'd say it's pretty obvious. Why does Jesus make this petition. It can only be because He foresaw what problems could arise because of the condition of the human heart, even in His people. Even the flesh nature of His people would be strong enough to disrupt the unity that we rightfully have. He foresaw what differences there would be among those for whom He died. He knew the sinfulness of man. And if there's one thing that causes division, if there's one thing that causes disunity and disharmony, it's man's sin. He knew that people are prideful. And that by pride comes nothing but strife and contention. Disunity. Jeremiah Burroughs wrote in his book that, quote, the stupidness of our hearts is such that we do not make our brethren's case our own. But we for the present, having some more liberty than formerly, are lifted up and in the pride of our hearts push at our brethren and smite our fellow servants. End quote. 
And Jesus knew that that's exactly what would happen. He knew that this is exactly a description of, of man's heart and what we're, we're so inclined to do. Because He knew that even when a man is filled with the Holy Spirit, man's flesh would still incline him to strive against the working of the Holy Spirit within him. Knowing this, Jesus prayed for His people to be one. That is, to have unity. James Montgomery Boyce notes that, quote, all the marks of the church, which we've been studying over the past few weeks, all the marks of the church concern the Christian's relationship to something or some person. He goes on to say, joy is the mark of the Christian in relation to himself. Holiness is the mark in relation to God. Truth is the mark in his relationship to the Bible. Mission is the mark in his relationship to the world. In this mark, unity, we deal with the Christian's relationship to all who are likewise God's children. End quote. So what do we even mean when we talk about Christian unity? And it's important that we ask this question because there are certain ideas, there are certain things that Christian unity certainly is not. First of all, the Protestant Reformation, not an organizational unity. That's what the church was prior to the Protestant Reformation, by the way. There was an organizational unity. There was a top dog and then there were peasants, but there were kind of layers in between. It was kind of built like a pyramid, kind of like most businesses these days. There was an organizational unity prior to the Protestant Reformation in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, But given the fact that this organizational unity was kind of broken at the Protestant Reformation, you might rightfully be thinking, well, that didn't work out too well, did it? And the answer is no, it didn't. Uh, it was a, a, a catastrophic failure, ultimately. And the reason that it was a failure is because it put so much power into one single position at the top. The position we know as the Pope. Right. And that kind of power, unfortunately, has a corrupting influence Uh, So it was just a matter of time, therefore, before the organizational unity, or at least the appearance of unity within that organization uh, that the Roman Catholic Church had, would crumble. But did this organization called the Roman Catholic Church have the kind of unity that Jesus is talking about here? I'm sure that they would say that it did and that it still does, but the answer is no. It never had the kind of unity that Jesus is talking about. And the evidence for that is that the Roman Catholic Church, prior to the Protestant Reformation, never caused the world around them to be in awe of their unity and to say, wow, you know, look at their unity. Clearly the Father did send the Son. Instead, there was a great amount of skepticism and animosity toward the Roman Catholic Church from the outside world. Charles Spurgeon noted that the attitude toward the the Roman Catholic Church was this. He writes, Did the world believe that God had sent Christ? The world believed the very opposite. The world was persuaded that God had nothing to do with that great, crushing, tyrannous, superstitious, ignorant thing which called itself Christianity, and thinking men became infidels, and it was the hardest possible thing to find a genuine, intelligent believer, north, south, east, or west. End quote. So no, there wasn't 
the type of unity that Jesus prayed for, and it had actually the opposite effect on the world. See, within the Roman Catholic Church, you had an increasing amount of disharmony as tradition took a more prominent role in the church. It was, for all intents and purposes, the visible church of the Middle Ages, but the true believers were just a tiny remnant within that organization, within that body. They had the outward facade, therefore, of unity, But Jesus here, He's not praying for just a facade of unity. He's not praying that we would look like we are one, but that we're really not. That's not what Jesus is praying here at all. But that's what describes the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. It was was just a superficial unity. So, no, Jesus is not praying for an organizational unity here. The second thing that Christian unity is not is cookie-cutter conformity, if, if you know what I'm talking about. You know, where the idea that, that all Christians uh, at all times, you know, they're, they're exactly alike in every possible way. Uh, and make no mistake about it, there are still many within Christendom as a whole who think that it should be this way. You have wayward leftist groups that are uh, kind of groupthink Uh, organizations like the Social Gospel Coalition producing regular articles, many of which are simply taking the culture's message and they're dressing it up with all kinds of Christian language, Christianese, so that it sounds Christian, but they're attempting to dictate how Christians should think about some of the most ridiculous things if you follow their articles. They'll label one thing as a gospel issue, but not others, and they do so kind of arbitrarily according to their own agenda. Uh, No, Christians have always been very, very different from one another in multiple ways. I used to frequently say that I haven't met very many people who believe all the same things that I do. And if somebody did, uh, they'd have to be crazy, uh, you know, from the top to the bottom of the proverbial, you know, checklist of doctrine. But now that I adhere to the second London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, I've found many who at least come very close. This is one of the, one of the p- things that we, that we find value in a confession in, is they, they articulate this unity, the things that we are united in. Uh, so it prevents us from straying into leaning on our own understanding. We never want to lean on our own understanding. There should be someone somewhere who agrees with us, uh, and when uh, there's a document like a confession that's written by several godly men uh, who spent their lives searching God's Word, searching for the truth of God's Word, uh, that's something that we can, can say, okay, we're going we're gonna to test this against the Scriptures, and insofar as this aligns with Scripture, we find this helpful. Uh, but our confession acknowledges the diversity that you find with, uh, you know, within the Christian community. Uh, in the first chapter, we read this in the seventh paragraph. It says, "...all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known." believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other uh, that not only the learned but the unlearned in a uh, a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them so what this paragraph does is it helps us to get to the point where we can answer this question about what christian unity is 
It doesn't mean that everybody is going to agree on everything. It means that we have unity and agreement in those things, in those, those doctrines, which are necessary to be known, which are necessary to be believed, and which are necessary to be observed for salvation. Now, we all recognize that there are many doctrines uh, which are neither necessary uh, nor are they heretical, such as infant baptism versus believer's baptism, pedo-baptism versus credo-baptism, uh, or, or covenant theology versus dispensationalism, uh, or, or those who believe that gifts are for today and that they continue today versus those who believe uh, that they're not for today. You know, things of this nature, these are uh, doctrines where there is room to disagree because you don't have to believe any of these things necessarily to be saved. Uh, these things don't infringe, therefore. They don't nullify the church's unity. We recognize the importance of the saying of old that in essentials we have unity, in, assen- in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. So we do have Unity. That is, we do have a unanimous consensus among Christians in doctrines that are necessary to the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the doctrine of the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the virgin birth, Christ's atoning sacrifice, the resurrection of Christ, the imminent return of Christ, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and so on and so forth. Those things are essential. All Christians at all times have believed these things. On these issues, Christians have unity. We, we agree. There's been a consensus throughout this age on these doctrines. And for doctrines that don't have eternal significance, you might say that we have denominations. That's where denominations come from. But the presence of denominations, to answer this objection that the skeptic or the scoffer might have regarding Christianity having over 40,000 denominations, the presence of denominations doesn't negate or nullify the church's unity. Rather, they reflect our liberty in non-essentials. The church does have the kind of unity throughout the current age that Christ prayed we would have. Because... The Father answered His prayer in the positive, in the affirmative. This is why we grieve when someone who claims to be a Christian denies one of these essential doctrines that the church has always affirmed. Some of you know there's somebody who is very close to me and dear to my heart who recently joined a cult where they claim that they're Christians but they teach that salvation is re- received by, uh, by grace through faith and baptism. Faith and baptism. So God does something and then you have to do this work in order to receive what He's given. Further, they only baptize on Easter Sunday. One time a year. One day a year. One Sunday a year. So if somebody hears the Gospel today, in July, and they and they die in say February, they weren't saved. Why not? Because they had faith, but they weren't baptized. That is not Christianity. 
The church has never ever believed this. That strays from the unity that the church has on this issue. We don't have Christian unity with any organization or any individual who believes that. Doctrinal truth and the purity of our doctrine is the foundation of Christian unity and thus to depart from what is true and necessary. To depart from true, necessary, foundational doctrine is to depart from the true church. But I think that we can probably all agree that this doesn't exactly settle the issue entirely for us. There's still not a sense of complete unity for many Christians. That's why people leave churches, for example. Why do they leave churches if there's unity among Christians? It does happen. Why do churches split if a church has unity? Even when both sides are legitimate Christians and affirm all the essentials, there are still church splits. Why does that happen? What causes such divisions? James answers that one for us. James chapter 4, verses 1-3 to says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not, the source of your, uh, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Keep in mind that the you here in this passage, when he says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you, the you here is bona fide, legitimate brothers and sisters in Christ. All who have a flesh nature that causes them to sin. But Scripture clearly acknowledges that this creates problems, that it creates strife, that it creates conflict, that we sin uh, within the church. It even creates divisions in a church body. Paul writes this to the, to the Corinthians. He says, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18. So how do we make any sense of this? Do, do we have unity or, or do we not? And the answer is yes, we do have unity. The invisible church, if you're familiar with that term, that is, those who are truly saved, has unmitigated unity in the essentials. It's a unity that, that transcends denominational barriers and lines on, on non-essential doctrines. But what we have to understand is really that there are two types of Christian unity. There are only two types, there are two types of Christian unity, and Jesus was only praying for one type, and that is positional unity positional unity. That is to say that everyone who has savingly believed on Jesus Christ has been made one in Him, by Him, and for Him. This kind of unity was not accomplished by us. There was nothing that you or I did to, to, to have this unity. It was accomplished by Christ's perfect sacrifice on our behalf, where He united us not only to Himself, but to His church, to, to our brothers and sisters. So this kind of unity is not only completely accomplished, but it cannot be undone. There's nothing that we can do to break that unity because nobody can lose their salvation. No one can take the sheep for whom Christ died from His hand. Exactly what Jesus said back in John chapter 10. So there's positional unity. Absolutely. 
But then there's a second kind of unity, which we would refer to as practical unity. So there's positional unity, and there is practical unity. Practical unity is the kind of unity in the faith that requires some work, some effort on our behalf. This is the unity that we have to strive for, that we have to work for. Jesus says, I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity here in verse 23. That they may be perfected in unity. What does it mean to be perfected in unity? I think at the very least it implies a process. So that process we would call sanctification, uh, but it, it involves some work. Uh, think of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, where Paul says this to the Ephesians. He says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the, uni- the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, if this was automatic, he wouldn't need to implore them in this way. Now, he's saying there's something that we have to work for. Our positional unity, yes, it is accomplished. Yes, it is certain. But, he says, we must be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, to, to live out that unity and to put that unity into actual practice so that our practical unity aligns with our positional unity. Our practical unity aligns with our positional unity. We, we, we have an invisible unity. It's, it's a unity that, you know, as far as I know, nobody has, a, you know, an E for elect on their, you know, tattooed on their chest or anything like that. So you can't, like, look at somebody and, and say, oh, that person is definitely saved. No, there, there's nothing like that, that that visibly points out that somebody is saved. It is an invisible unity that we have. That much is established. That's our positional unity. What we must work to establish and what we must work to maintain is a visible unity. So we have to strive for our practical unity to reflect the reality of our positional unity. Think about it. It's the same principle that we find in concepts like righteousness. We know that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, when Christ died on the cross, our sins were transferred. That is, they were imputed to Him. They were given to Him. And in exchange, He clothed each of us, all who believe savingly on Him, with what? With His own perfect, unblemished righteousness so that we stand before God blameless and righteous. That's a positional righteousness. It's established. It is done, as Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. But then there is also a practical righteousness for which we must strive, isn't there? We don't say, well, you know, it's, it's okay for me to sin since I'm still going to be clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. Perish the thought. No, central to our lives as Christians is going to war with the flesh and mortifying our sinful desires so that we have a positional or a practical righteousness that reflects the reality of our positional righteousness. Does that make sense? So back to our first question our questions. First, what is Christian unity? Christian unity is a positional unity in which 
true Christians share a common salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Uh, Secondly, what is the foundation of Christian unity? Well, we've covered that too. The, The purity of our doctrine, particularly with doctrines that are essential, things that you must believe in order to be a Christian, in order to be saved. And finally, what does Christian unity look like in a practical sense? In other words, when you look at a a church body, what should you see? When you look at Christians, what should you see? That's what we mean when we ask, what does Christian unity look like in a practical sense? And Scripture has so much to say on this one issue. You could point to Ephesians 4, 1-3, to as we've already seen. You could uh, point to Romans chapter 12, verse 18, one of my favorite verses, uh, which says, uh, If possible, insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. This would be one way to answer the question, is just to go through a checklist of these types of verses. But I think a more helpful and perhaps a more beneficial way to answer this question is to consider the imagery that the New Testament gives us of the church. There are certain illustrations, certain pictures of things uh, that, that, are, uh, that exemplify the church, that give uh, an illustration of the church and the way that it's supposed to work. Maybe the most common one, the most common imagery of the church that we find in the New Testament uh, is that in which it relates to us as being family. As being family. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5 says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. What a wonderful picture of God's saving, redeeming grace adoption is. See, a child who gets adopted doesn't choose the parents who will adopt him. Rather, it's the parents who choose the child to adopt. And likewise, Scripture tells us in no uncertain terms that we did not choose God, but He chose us. Jesus told us this uh, earlier on in the night uh, as he was giving the farewell discourse, I did not. Cho- you did not choose me. I chose you. Uh, apart from his grace, Scripture tells us in Romans chapter three, verses ten to twelve. Apart from his grace, there is none righteous, not even one. There's that word righteous. There's not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. There's nobody who does good. Is believing in Jesus good? Yeah, it is. And nobody does it on their own. We need God's grace to even do that much. God is the one who chose us. God is the one who adopted us into His spiritual family. We were dead in our trespasses just like everyone else. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God put a new heart within us, a heart that would respond to Him, a heart that would love Him, a heart that would desire to obey Him. Uh, That's something the natural heart does not desire or aspire to. John said back in the first chapter of his uh, Gospel, he said in verse 13 that we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. 
Now, I, I don't know how much clearer it can get than that, that it was God's will that we be adopted as sons and daughters, not ours. Now, there are some really important implications uh, that we find in this image of being adopted into God's family. Uh, that is what it is. It, it's, a, it's a family. We are brothers and sisters. That's why I call you brothers and sisters. But first of all, just like nobody decides who their siblings in the flesh will be or won't be, uh, we have no say in who God chooses to be our brothers and sisters in Christ. And honestly, as I consider this implication I realize that it's something that that at least I should be very grateful for because if you had seen me, if you had had known me prior to God's grace taking hold of me and changing me, if you would have seen my flesh with no restraint by the Holy Spirit dwelling within me, trust me when I say that you would not have wanted me as a brother. Trust me. I was such a wretched hypocrite. I was so prideful. I was so stupidly prideful. I thought I was such a good person. I was so prideful. But a second implication that we've already kind of touched on is is that once we're brought into God's family, our brothers and sisters will always be our brothers and sisters, just like in the flesh. And since the relationship is unbreakable, we must be committed to loving and to serving, and to tolerating our spiritual siblings in tangible ways, preserving, working to preserve the peace between us insofar as it depends on us. With the advent of the social gospel, now a bit over 100 years ago, there came a tendency to view all of humanity as our brothers and sisters, uh, to see all people as children of God. But friends, If you look at Scripture, nothing could be further from the truth. We were born in the same condition as the skeptics and the scoffers. We were born as children of wrath, not as children of God. We were children of wrath, not of God. We're children of wrath by nature, by grace, into His family. Uh, part of the shock of Genesis chapter 4. If, if you know Genesis chapter 4, that's where Cain murders Abel. It's the first murder in human history. But part of the shock of that is that the first murder ever committed was one brother killing another brother. Something that should have been absolutely unthinkable. But it's to show us, that that story shows us how horrific sin is. It it wasn't like there was a a slow descent going downward where, you know, eventually we're going to get pretty bad here. No, it was immediately dropping off a cliff. We are as depraved, we're born as depraved as a man can possibly be. The way that God designed the family without sin's influence. In that context, brothers would have loved, they would have served, they would have cared for one another. And that's how we, as children of God, are now to act toward our brethren. We have a tighter unity, a tighter positional unity, that is, with a believer than we have with even our closest relatives in the flesh. So let's strive for that to be a practical unity as well. A second image of Christian unity that we find in the New Testament, and you're probably familiar with this, is the image of a body. 
this is maybe the most helpful illustration of, of all of them because it gives us a, a really clear picture and a lot of good implications for what Christian unity is supposed to look like, practically speaking. It does not look like cookie-cutter conformity, that's for sure. It shows uh, beautiful diversity. It shows unity in that diversity. It shows that we are all connected together, and that as we are connected together, we are all working together. I mean, how silly would it be for a finger to you know, be acting like a toe or for a shoulder to be tr- trying to do the same thing that an eye does? I mean, we, we get how absurd that would be. Uh, but this is the illustration that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he writes this. He says, for even as the body, talking about Christians, even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body, is it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each of them, in the body just as He desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. Now this is wonderfully illustrative of the fact that Christian unity is a fact, that it is accomplished, and that we've been given a work on earth to do. Uh, So we're not to work alone, but God has enabled us to work together. I also love the fact that we don't get to pick which part of the body we get to be. Uh, Rather, this passage emphasizes that God is the one who's placed each member in the body just as He desired. He is the cause of our cohesiveness. He is the founder of our function. Elsewhere, Paul writes this to the Ephesians, verses 11 to 16. He says, And He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. There's the implication of a process there. And the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This is what the church is supposed to look like. This is the way that God has designed the church to function. When the church functions as God designed it to function, it is a thing to behold. That is when there is the practical unity that reflects our positional unity. It is a beautiful thing to see. The goal is to grow up in all aspects, to mature, 
to become like Christ in all aspects unto Him who is the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, we're to become mature. We're to grow in Christ's likeness in our character. How? The passage says, by speaking the truth in love. That, uh, the truth, that's something that was central to Jesus' prayer back in verse 17. So we're to hold what is, uh, to what is true, seasoning our speech with love and with grace. Uh, J.C. Ryle notes this. He says, quote, We can ask no stronger proof of the value of unity among Christians and the sinfulness of division than the great prominence which our Master assigns to the subject in this passage. He goes on to say, How often Christians have wasted their strength in contending against their brethren instead of contending against sin and the devil. End quote. Unity. And so with that said, friends, may our practical unity align with our positional unity. May we commit ourselves to the things that produce peace among the brethren, that produce unity among the brethren. And may we flee from the temptation to engage in any sin that may interfere with this, that may cause strife and contention and division. Our Master has purchased our unity, and He has prayed for our unity. Let us therefore be united in the truths that Scripture sets forth, especially the essentials, and let us commit to engaging in our mission of bringing the gospel to the lost, making disciples of the nations together, knowing that our unity, particularly in the essentials, does say something to an unbelieving world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the way that it instructs us. Thank You for the way that it comforts us. Thank You for the way that sometimes it even the truth of Your Word and confronts us. And Lord, we can do nothing but acknowledge the truth of Your Word. The truth that apart from Your grace, we never would have chosen You. The truth that apart from Your grace working in us, there would be no unity, no harmony among us. We would have no understanding of these essential truths without Your grace. And so we thank You that by Your grace, we do have understanding. By Your Spirit working within us, we do have understanding of these essential doctrines. And Lord, we do pray that our unity would not only be positional, but that it would be practical. So we pray that You would teach us, O Lord, to practice the things that produce unity and harmony among Your people. Teach us, O Lord, to discern wisely among those who claim to be Christians and to love those with whom we have this positional unity in order that the world around us may see the unity and the harmony that exists and the liberty that exists in the non-essentials. Above all, our love for one another and for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.